kindergarten to second grade to be dismissed to children's church. And while our kids are taking off to children's church, would you open up your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28 is our focus text this morning. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. And if you're looking in a pew Bible, you can find that on page 651. Proverbs 25, 28, page 651. As we continue, get back into our study of Proverbs after the missions banquet. And how you all liking Proverbs? You liking it? It's good. Yeah, yeah I don't know if I like it. No. It's a little bit convicting, actually. I'm, uh, I don't know. Proverbs is kind of getting into my business a little bit. I'm finding, and uh, I keep reading Proverbs, going, huh? I think that's talking about me. Yeah, I don't know how I like that. Well, I'm uh, regretting to inform you that today is no different. Uh, today we're coming to another one of those pointed subjects. Uh, we're coming to the topic of self-control. Self-control. One that, that I find very convicting. Look at Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28. It says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Now already, just by bringing up the specter of self-control, we are at loggerheads with our culture. Because as uh, the, the Scriptures call us to self-control, uh, our society valorizes and calls us to self-indulgence. Uh, it, it calls us to, to just let loose, you know, um, to do what you want, to have what you want. I mean, that's the message in our society. The, the good life in American terms is having enough dough to be able to do whatever you want Whenever you want, as much as you want it. I mean, that's the good life. And so perhaps you could say the, the symbol, if you wanted to picture, pick a symbol, is uh, the cruise ship. That's the good life. You're, some of you have been on a cruise. I mean, it's, you know, it's really fun. You, you eat all you want. Everyone gains weight on a cruise. And if you're into it, you can party all that you want. You know, you're not going anywhere, so you can just go wild. You can lay by the pool all you want and do nothing all that you want. You can uh, land at exotic ports of call and spend all the money you want shopping. And so we say, oh, that's a good life. Like, you know, the good life would be sort of like a cruise that never comes to an end. That's the good life. Uh, or, or maybe if you want to be a little more gritty, sometimes a simple thing of the, the good life is a casino. You know, Foxwoods or Mohegan Sun or where I grew up in Las Vegas. And just being able to go there and as long as you're gambling... The ladies keep bringing you drinks and the buffet is open all the time and whatever you want, it's all there. And so that, that image of self-indulgence. In fact, we even have Proverbs. We have little Proverbs, don't we? You heard this proverb, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Or, or we have little sayings like, you know, I deserve this. I, I really, I, I'm worth it, right? You know, I'm doing this for me. You're doing it for you? Yes, for me. Oh, you're so enlightened. Yes, I know. This is for me, right? And, and as if like that's a reason to do whatever it is that we want to do. And so the idea that somebody who have the resources to indulge themselves would intentionally limit themselves and control themselves just does not make sense to us. Like, why wouldn't you upgrade your life if you had the money to upgrade? I mean, why not, Right? I think that's the whole idea behind this economic stimulus package, which I don't know how that's going to work, but that's just my own economic philosophy. But, you know, the, the government voted to give us money, right? And so we're all going to be getting these checks in the mail, or some of us, and it's going to be like you know, a $500 check or an $800 check. 
And you're like, free money, right? I mean, well, it was your money anyway, but they just gave it back to you. And you're like, free money, right? I'm going to go to Best Buy, wee. Like the underlying assumption is that if you had found money, you would indulge yourself in whatever it is that you really wanted to do. So the idea that you would restrain yourself or hold back, just like self-control, what's that about? Uh, But the picture we have here in Proverbs is very different from our own natural inclinations and uh, the message of the world around us. Uh, The picture in Proverbs is that the life with luxury and without limits, self-indulgence, is not the good life. That that actually leads to the ruined life. So we have this really, I, I think, evocative image in verse 28. It says, like a city whose walls are broken down, is a man who lacks self-control. This is a great picture. I was just kind of turning that picture around in my mind this week. Uh, As you know, ancient cities were surrounded by walls to protect them, people inside from bandits and enemies and uh, wild animals, lions and tigers and bears. And, And so no one could get in the city except at certain choke points the, the gates. So cities would have cert, a certain number of gates around them. And the point is that the gate, you could open the gate and close the gate. You were in control of what came in and out of that city. And if something was bad for the city, you would close the gate. And if something was good, you would open the gate. Or you could moderate how much of something came into the city. So that's the image here. If that city in the ancient world had a section of its wall that was breached, the city was then compromised and the people inside the city were no longer under control of the city because anyone could come in and plunder the city and anyone could go out and it was just an open uh, sort of mess. Uh, I was thinking about just a couple weeks ago, sort of a modern example. Some of you heard about uh, the border between Egypt and Palestine had been breached by militants who took some equipment and just plowed the the fence down. And so for several days, there was this unchecked uh, stream of people, thousands of people crossing back and forth. And the Egyptian government was concerned uh, that, that you know, militant forces and their arms were flowing back and forth, uh, uh, bolstering one another. And so, you know, just a, a modern example. We could think of more examples. But the image is pretty clear. When there's a hole in the wall, things are out of control and it ruins us. And so that's the image that the writer of Proverbs is applying to our lives. We are like that city. And the way it's supposed to function is that we are in control. And we open the gates and we close the gates. But we're ultimately in control of what's happening in the city. But when there's a breach in the wall, then anything can come in. And when we don't have self-control in our lives and we just indulge ourselves recklessly, we open ourselves up to all kinds of things. And we lose all kinds of things going out the hole in the wall. Uh, Now, maybe I should just make clear, uh, if I could just digress for a second. When I'm talking about self-control and when the Scripture is talking about self-control, you need to distinguish that from asceticism. I think it's important just to make that little caveat. In other words, asceticism is, you know, you go to a cave and you leave the world and you take a vow of poverty and a vow of chastity and a vow of silence and a vow of no fun and whatever, a vow of no TV, and you just go in this cave. Or like they did in the third century, you know, they had these monks who they put poles in the ground and they would go sit up on the pole for like 10 years and wouldn't come down because they were, they were trying to tune out the world. So when I say self-control, I'm not saying never enjoy anything in life and therefore go become an ascetic monk living in a cave. What we're talking about is self-control, all things in moderation. That God gives us good gifts 
But the self-control person can say, okay, that's enough. All right, a little of this, but that's enough. And they know where those lines are and they're able to exercise control of the gates. But if we don't have that self-control, we are like, it says in Proverbs, a city whose walls are broken down. And so unrestrained self-gratification does not lead to a good life. It leads to a ruined life. And Proverbs goes on to delineate some of the ways in which that takes place. You know, specifically, what does that look like? All right, so that's the image, but like in real everyday life, how does unchecked self-gratification hurt us and ruin us? And so let me just suggest from Proverbs uh, quickly here four ways in which a lack of self-control hurts our lives. And the first one we find in Proverbs is that it harms us financially. There's a financial harm. It costs money to, to live large. <laughs> and it ruins you. Uh, look at Proverbs chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. Proverbs chapter uh, 23, verses 20 and 21. It says, Do not join those who drink too much wine. Again, it's a matter of indulgence. Or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor. And drowsiness clothes them in rags. Or look at uh, Proverbs chapter 21. Go back two chapters. Verse 17. He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. It costs money to be a hedonist. Uh, it's expensive. And uh, it doesn't matter what you know, the, the pleasure du jour is for you, whether it's you know, food or vacations or uh, you know, entertainment, sports. You know, pot is expensive. Uh, drugs are expensive. They drain your sustenance financially, among other things. Um, you know, it costs money to uh, go to the spa and to go to nutritionists and to focus all on the health of your body. Uh, if you want to keep your wardrobe looking current and you want your nails always to look like they were done yesterday, you're going to have to shell out for that. And, and so it costs a lot of money to indulge ourselves. Uh, this is a problem. Uh, I, I was thinking, you know, what would it be like someday if at the judgment day when we have to stand before God, God does like a PowerPoint presentation and he says, let's look at your financial life. And he puts up on the wall this big PowerPoint thing and he puts up like one of those pie, pie charts. And he's like, this is the amount of the pie of your money that I gave you over your whole life that was spent on self-indulgent pleasure seeking, okay? And then he says, now here is the sliver of the money that I gave you that you spent on helping others and advancing the kingdom of God. Now, what would the pie chart look like? I don't know if I want to know. I have a feeling I don't have a choice. We are going to find out. And so it, it ruins us financially. We all know people who've been ruined financially because they, they just lost control gambling or getting into whatever and done it to excess. But it doesn't just destroy us financially. It also destroys our relationships. Uh, number two, relationships. Look at Proverbs chapter 28, verse 7. Proverbs 28, verse 7. A lack of self-control mars relationships it says in proverbs 27 he who keeps the law is a discerning son but a companion of gluttons disgraces his father 
It brings disgrace on our families and on, on each other in relationships when we live in ways that are out of control. Uh, you know, we're not isolated. Our lives affect one another. This whole idea that like, you know, hey, it's just my thing, man, and I'm doing it over here behind closed doors and it's not hurting anybody, it's just garbage. You know, we're all interconnected with the people that we love and our families. And, and we have repercussions. And sometimes we don't see those repercussions because, frankly, we're so narcissistically obsessed with our own pleasures, we can't see how it's affecting other people. But it does affect other people. You know, and it's a disgrace. Um, some of you uh, have kids who've gone astray. And despite all that you've done to try to raise them and teach them the right thing, you know, it's embarrassing. And, and you hate it when you're talking to other parents about, like, their kids. Because everyone's like, hey, what are your kids doing? What's Johnny doing? Oh, Johnny's at Stanford Law and it's his second year. Oh, that's great. And what's Sally doing? Oh, she's in the Peace Corps. And then they're like, and what's Freddie doing? And you're like, heroin, you know. <laughs> and people are like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, you know. But, and really, you're just ashamed. You're like, dang, <laughs> it's disgraceful. Or, or flip it around, flip it around. Are your kids proud of you as their parent? And my kids proud that I'm their dad, or they're kind of like, you know, my dad, I don't want to talk about him because he's this, that, and the other thing. Do we disgrace one another? This is not just our own personal, private pleasure seeking, but when we lose control of our lives, it affects the people we love, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, it does. But it not only affects our resources financially because it costs dough to be self-indulgent, and not only does it affect our relationships, it affects our health and our bodies. I think that's kind of an obvious one. But look at uh, Proverbs 25:16. This is a nice little gritty proverb. That's what I like about Proverbs. It's down to earth. Proverbs 25:16. If you find honey, eat just enough. So you can have honey. Enjoy the things of this world, but just eat enough. <clears throat> Too much of it, and you will vomit. That's right. Vomit is in the Bible. Check it out. <laughs> now, I know that this uh, can clearly be taken in more figurative terms, but you could also take it literally and say, yeah, you know, it hurts your body. It makes you sick. We all know that, that drinking too much, uh, you know, pickles your liver and pickles your brain and and it's not good for you over the long term. In fact, uh, I think alcohol is such a, a significant issue probably in all of our lives. We, my guess is most of us here have people in our lives who have a drinking problem. We've been profoundly affected by it. We've seen how it's ravaged families, uh, perhaps generations and generations of that in our family. Some of us have struggled with that ourselves. Uh, it is just a big issue in this culture. And it's a big issue in Proverbs. So next Sunday, the sermon is going to be just focusing on that whole issue of alcohol and looking at a proverb that deals with it extensively. And so, you know, I'd be interested to, you know, sort of wrestle with that. Um, because, you know, we all have questions like, can Christians drink? If not, why not? If they can, how do we do that? And how do we as Christians, regardless of whether or not we drink, relate to a society where uh, alcohol is just you know, abused everywhere. I mean, for the most part, when people drink, they drink to excess in the society around us. The idea of sort of drinking with restraint, it's just, you know, it's an idea. It's not really practice. So how do we do that? I mean, it's a really complex topic. So uh, come next Sunday to hear Pastor Seth tackle it. It'll be great. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. 
but, you know, it, getting back to the topic, it hurts our bodies. Alcohol is bad for us. If, if we engage in promiscuity and drug use, we open up our bodies to diseases that can ravage and be lethal. Um, if you sit on the couch for seven, eight hours, you know, at a stretch and just watch nothing on for seven or eight hours and, and you become a sedentary person, it's not good for our health. Uh, all of those things. If, we, if, we, if our self-indulgence causes us to lose sleep, it damages our bodies and, and hurts us in different ways. Uh, some of you perhaps have struggled with the self-indulgence of, um, of what we call today eating disorders, um, bulimia and anorexia, which is kind of ironic because those, those are all about controlling the food you eat, and yet you're completely out of control and trying to controlling. So it's, it's sort of a weird one. It's like out of control control, uh, and it's not good. And, and, you know, probably there's many of you here uh, who know someone, or maybe you yourself struggle with that, and I just want to say, you know, you have to reach out to somebody and someone you love and trust and, and break the silence on that because it's not good what you're doing. You're not helping yourself. It, it's not uh, good for you and it's not good for your soul, your relationship with God. And so self-indulgence is destructive whether it, it destroys our finances, our relationships, our bodies. And the final thing it does is, and I see in Proverbs, it, it degrades our spirits. It degrades us. In other words, it takes us from being the rational, volitional creatures that God made us to be in His image, and it reduces us to the level of animals driven by instinct rather than people who are in control of themselves who just become like beasts. And there's a really another gritty proverb. Look at chap, uh, chapter 26, verse 11. More vomit. Here it comes. Proverbs 26:11. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. That's another good one. Isn't that a gross image? Some of you have dogs? I don't, and this verse is why. <laughs> I don't like cleaning up animal stuff. And so here's this dog, and it vomits, and then they go away, and then they come back like ten minutes later, and they find it, and they're like, oh, that's food. And it's like... Right? Right? It's what it said. Hey, this has got to be like top ten grossest verses in the Bible, man. Why is that verse there? It's because God wants to show us at a visceral level how disgusting sin is. You know, we intellectualize it. And God's like, it's like a dog going back to his vomit, all right? Let's, let's get real about what this is. And, and the point is, when we get trapped in cycles of habitual self-indulgence, it reduces us from being a person in God's image and we act like a dog, which, you know, in, in Hebrew culture, that was low. To say, it's, in our culture, to say someone's like a dog. And, and that's how we become. And so we know it's bad for us, yet we do it again. And we know that if we look at the pornography, we're going to feel empty and guilt-ridden, and yet we do it again. And we know that we don't have the money for this shopping spasm that we feel like we're about to have, and we know it's going to put us in debt, but we do it anyway. And we know that if we eat the whole package of Oreos, right, we know how we're going to feel. And we gobble, gobble it down anyway. And we know there's nothing on TV. And that if we sit there and flip the channels for four hours and stay up till two in the morning, there's still going to be nothing on TV because we did it last night. And we do it anyway. And, and, we, and we're like, what, what's wrong with me? What can I stop this? 
Why can't I be in control of myself? And we feel ourselves reduced. And so it plunders our treasure. It fractures our relationships. It destroys our health. And unchecked self-indulgence ultimately degrades us, I think, as human beings from being the kind of people that God created us to be, which is volitional creatures who live under the authority of Christ. The way it's supposed to work is the city is supposed to have walls intact with gates and in the center of the city is to be a throne and on the throne is to be Jesus. And His law and His grace controls the city. And the gates open and close in obedience to Christ and His Word. That's what it's supposed to be. But instead, it's a ruined wreck of a city that comes through over-self-indulgence. And so the question I want to ask you this morning, I'm going to ask myself, is where are the holes in your wall? That's the application question. When you look at your life, do you see a place where it's a big hole? And maybe people drive by your city and they're like, oh, nice city, good gates, well kept, I like it. But they don't see that like on the back side of the city is a rift because that's on the back side and no one sees that side. And we keep that side hidden. And we go to church, how are you? Fine, how are you? Fine, I'm great. Everything great, great, you know. But there's this whole area and we have never opened up about that to someone. Or maybe it's not a hole, maybe you just use another image. Do you know where the soft spots in the wall are? You know, we all have those places in our lives where we are prone to sin, where we are prone to overindulgence. Do you know if the enemy were to come against you with siege works, where would he put the tower and the battering ram against your city? Do you know those places? And they're peculiar to, to each of us. And I've listed uh, some ideas for you. Do you know where those places are where we tend to lose control and worship our pleasures and our, our desires? You know, I, I know myself. I know some of my weak spots. You know, two of mine. Food, are you surprised? <laughs> I talk about it all the time. And uh, entertainment. I'm the kind of person that if I just followed my base instincts, I could literally, I know I could, eat pizza all day, even if I wasn't hungry, and watch TV, movies, and video games all day. I could do it for a week. I just, that's the kind of person I am. I don't know what that makes me, a toad, couch potato, but that's, that's how I have those base instincts. And if I were to let myself go unchecked, I could ruin my life being, you know, a total slacker. And so I have to keep coming back to Christ and having Him strengthen the walls of my life and, and to take those things in moderation, in moderation, and underneath the authority of Christ, to open it when Christ says open and to close it when Christ says close it so that He is the Lord of all of the pleasures that we enjoy in life. And so, uh, can we grow in self-control? Or do we simply have this despairing picture of a broken down wall? And of course we can, because God can do anything. What's impossible with man is possible with God. God is the Lord and He is sovereign and He can, he can fix us and give us self-control and, and change us from the inside out. And so I just want to look at a text that points us in the direction of how we uh, gain self-control. It's uh, John chapter 4. If you could turn there in the New Testament and we'll close with this text. John chapter 4, verse 4. It's on page 1052. John chapter 4, verse 4. Page 1052. We could talk about a lot of things when we talk about gaining self-control. We could talk about finding out your triggers. 
that send you off into a binge. We could talk about um, finding the right friends to associate with who will help you not fall into temptation. We could talk about having an accountability partner. All those things are true. And I wish I had another half hour. I'd preach on that too. But, but I want to, in the time left, take us beneath the behavioral level of behavioral modification and to say to really become self-controlled, what is the spiritual root of self-indulgence? And therefore, what is the spiritual wellspring of self-control? We need to get to the heart of the matter and not merely deal with behavioralism, although that's important too. But ultimately, what the Gospel wants to bring us is an internal transformation, not simply a transformation in some habits and behaviors. And so the root of it we see here in John 4 is really our hearts. Our hearts are separated from God, and so we search for something to fill us up other than God, and it never works. Look at John chapter 4, verse 4. Let me just move through this text quickly. It says, Now he, that is Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Here we go. Jesus was, uh, And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So context, Jesus is traveling. It's the desert. It's sixth hour, which in our time would be about noon, is what we'd call that. So it's the heat of the day in the desert. And he couldn't find an Evian water dispenser. Uh, so he comes to where they had to get water, which was a hole in the ground. Comes this well. Sits down at the well, and that's where he meets the woman. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. And I wish you had time to delve into that whole thing, but we don't. So I just need to move on. Verse 10. Jesus answered her. Here we go. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked Him. And He would have given you living water. So in typical Jesus fashion, He starts these conversations and He takes some physical thing in front of them and He uses it as a springboard and metaphor for something spiritual. He did this all the time. All his parables. He's taken regular life things and turned them into metaphors for things spiritual. He does it here. He's like, yeah, yeah, I've got this water here and you're going to give me some water. But guess what? I've got some real water for you. But kind of went over her head. She didn't quite get it. Verse 11. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yes, he is. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also uh, did his sons and his flocks and his herds. So Jesus tries it a second time in verse 13. He's going to try to do this again, see if she's going to pick up on the spiritual implications. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If we drink from the water of the well, we will be thirsty again. There is nothing in this world that can satisfy the deep cravings and needs of the human heart. This woman had tried. You know what her broken wall was? You know where she was self-indulgent? It was guys, men. Look down to verse 16. Just jump ahead a little bit. Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And then Jesus, you know, being a prophet as well as the Son of God, Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. 
The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And she's startled. She says, sir, the woman says, I can see that you are a prophet. And so Jesus says, yeah, I know where you've been drinking. You've been drinking in relationships. You think some guy is going to do it for you. And then he doesn't, so you get another guy. And then that doesn't work, so you get another guy. And finally, you're just done with marriage. You're just living with a guy because, you know, why get married again? It's been five and didn't work. And, and, but, you know, this woman has gone back to the well of relationships, thinking that some man or some human can fulfill the deep needs of her heart. And this is what it means to be a sinful human being. It's that we have rejected God as our life and our source and our water. And we have turned to the world. And as a result, we have this empty place inside of us uh, that Blaise Pascal called the God-shaped vacuum. And in that vacuum, we try to put things to satisfy what God used to be. And instead, we, we end up being hungry and thirsty. And so we try another guy or we try food or drink or whatever, shopping, vacations, work, exercise, whatever it is, we try to fill up the needs we feel inside. And so one of the consequences of being in rebellion against God as a sinner is constantly being unsatisfied. Even when we're satisfied, we're not satisfied. There's something that's still yearning and, and longing there. But Jesus has the living water. So he says in verse 14, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So everything in this world that we seek to find meaning and purpose in is like something taken in from the outside to fill up a hole. But Jesus says the water I give you, it doesn't go from the outside in. He says I'm going to put it on the inside and it's going to bubble up It's even going to flow out and other people are going to come to you because they're thirsty. Because you have the living water coming out of you, not something that you need to go into you to make you happy. And this is the great joy of the Christian life is that we have this living water in us. And by the way, what is the living water? Well, fortunately, Jesus tells us in chapter 7. This is one we don't even have to guess at. It's great. I love it. I love when Jesus just tells us. Chapter 7, verse 37 Fast forward, Jesus is in Jerusalem at a feast. It says in verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, that's how we access the water, believing in Jesus, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within Him. Same imagery. And by this He meant the Spirit, the Holy Spirit for uh, whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. So when you believe in Jesus and you say, God, I am a sinner like all these people are talking about here today and I need You to change me, God places His Holy Spirit in us and life comes from the inside out. It's not all those things that we look to on the outside to fill us up from within. Not even religion which can't fill us up. It needs to be the Holy Spirit living within us from the inside out. That's real biblical Christianity. And you know, that's what these stories were. And, and if you had come to the 830 service, you would have heard more stories about people whose lives have been transformed. You know, how do these people's lives get transformed? It's because God is powerful and God fills them up. I mean, we're, you know, we really don't have a, a good program for making people Christians in our church. Doesn't that sound funny? <laughs> Only God can do that. We share the Word. We preach the Gospel. But only God can put the living water in people. And that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit changing them. And so and when that comes in someone, it just it wells up and it overflows. And people are drawn to Christ's life in them. 
And so, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer, I think we have here the start of an approach towards self-control. And the idea is we need to be satisfied in Jesus. Because when I'm satisfied in Christ, I don't need the other things. I can take them or I can leave them. You know, I can enjoy a nice meal. I can enjoy a cruise. I can enjoy music. Dare I say I can enjoy a glass of wine. But I don't have to have those things. And if I don't have them, eh, that's no big deal either. Which is why Paul could say, I've learned the secret to being content whether I have plenty or whether I'm in want. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse is talking about the contentment we experience in Jesus. So in order to get down to the root of self-control and to sever the nerve of self-indulgence, I think the key is we have to find ways to stir up and uh, kindle and inflame our satisfaction in Christ. And that as we are more satisfied in Christ, we will find that all those other things that appeal to us, they just kind of lose their power. They sort of wither. Like, you know, why do I want to eat a mud pie when I have like, the buffet of heaven in Christ? And you know, another great thing about Jesus is you can never overindulge. <laughs> you can't have too much Christ. You can't get sick on Christ. He won't ruin you financially. He just fills you up. And, and, and when you have more, it just goes out to others. It's amazing. And so, satisfy your souls in Christ, brothers and sisters. Let's just draw closer to Him. And maybe you're at a place today where maybe you're not a believer, but you're more like the lady at the well. Maybe you're a guy at the well. And where you're at today is that Jesus has sat down next to you. And even today, He has pinpointed in your heart those things where you have sought other things rather than Him. And maybe Christ is calling you today to put your faith in Him, to... You know, he's holding out the cup of living water. He says, drink the living water. And all you have to do is believe in him and lay aside those other things and say, God, I confess those as sin and I reach out in faith to receive what Christ has to give me. And so I pray that today you might reach out and that through Christ your life would be transformed from the inside out. Well, let's pray.